Imagine a scenario like this. The Mossad has uncovered Iran's plans to smuggle untraceable weapons of mass destruction into Israel. The clock is ticking, and counterterrorism agents can't act quickly enough. Though the story is fictional, it's inspired by real events. Welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. That's a conversation we're going to have in a few minutes. Right now on The Land of the Book, we're going to welcome Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. Charlie has been to Israel more than 100 times, is an Old Testament scholar, and has written extensively on the Middle East. Welcome to The Land of the Book, Charlie. Hey, John, thank you. It's always great being with you. So here we are in this new year, and maybe people are wondering as they think about, you know, goals and reaching out and sharing Jesus, how do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it's sometimes challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with someone from a Jewish background. You ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it? And to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that those tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. Now, to receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, let's dive into this week's current event stories. Israel's new government has been described, quote, as a disaster for democracy. Some have even called for mass civil disobedience to bring about its collapse. Wow. Help us see through all the hype, Charlie, the hysteria, to understand the real issues surrounding this new coalition. And is it that shaky? Yeah, you know, I need to start by saying this. Actually, the coalition right now isn't shaky, and that's what's scaring some people. But I do have mixed feelings about the coalition. You know, the more extreme groups that are now part of the coalition remind me of some of the far right-wing, far left-wing ideologies in our country you know, the ones who push for a personal agenda rather than looking for a way to compromise to benefit the vast majority. Now, to form a government, Netanyahu had to give in on a number of radical demands to get these groups into the government. And if some of those proposals are implemented, it could create greater tension between Israel and the Palestinians and between Israel and the U.S. Now, having said that, I take much of what's being reported about the new government in the press with a healthy dose of skepticism. For example, Ben Gavir was attacked for visiting the Temple Mount with some suggesting he was deliberately trying to antagonize the Palestinians and push for the building of a Jewish temple on the site. What he actually said was that he's in favor of access for all to the site, Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And he went in response to a threat by Hamas to attack, should he dare to visit. He said he would not give in to terrorist threats. Well, that was a reasonable response. Now, I think we need to give the new government the benefit of the doubt until we see exactly how they choose to govern. Now, as I said, though, I, I do have some concerns I think we need to watch. We need to see how the new government responds to both Israeli Arabs and to the Palestinians. Will they seek to represent all the people or just those who voted for them? And second, we need to watch the impact this new government will have on Jewish believers in the land. You know, some of the more radical elements include groups who have attacked Messianic Jewish believers in the past. We need to watch to make sure the new government doesn't discriminate against Jewish followers of Jesus. Netanyahu's a seasoned politician, but he's the head of a coalition that includes groups who have never been in leadership and who have espoused some rather radical, dogmatic positions. 
if Netanyahu can keep these more radical elements in check, uh, this could be the greatest challenge to his leadership that he's ever faced. And he does need our prayers. For sure. Good reminder, Charlie. Tensions between Iran and Israel continue to ratchet up, with Iran demonstrating mock attacks on Israel harbors and vessels, while Israel and the U.S. practice long-range aerial missions against Iran. Is this just saber-rattling on the part of both sides, or could this be the prelude to war? You know, right now, it's hard to tell for sure. Certainly, both sides have been rattling their sabers. Iran's state broadcaster aired a video describing what it said would be Iran's response to any Israeli attack on their nuclear facilities. They threatened to hit targets in Israel within seven minutes of the attack and then follow that up with a second wave of rockets that they said would raise Tel Aviv. They also published a mock attack on a site made to look like Israel's naval base at lot, which included a naval vessel like those in Israel's fleet. In Israel, Netanyahu chose a veteran Iran hawk to lead Israel's National Security Council. The longtime Netanyahu ally has said in the past Israel would strike Iran if the U.S. failed to stop its nuclear program. Uh, The outgoing Secretary of Defense, Gantz, actually said that he expected an attack within two to three years. Uh, Iran continues to send precision missiles to Hezbollah, threatening to have Hezbollah unleash them should Israel attack Iran. Meanwhile, Israel announced the arrival of six American fighter jets for, quote, temporary deployment in southern Israel to hold joint drills. Uh, The implication is that they're preparing for the possibility of a strike on Iran. But it's still unclear if any of this is a prelude to an actual attack. Uh, Netanyahu is concerned the U.S. will still try to get Iran to sign back onto a nuclear deal that would handcuff Israel and keep them from launching an attack. And Iran doesn't believe the U.S. will intervene militarily to stop them and, and frankly thinks the U.S. will stop Israel from launching an attack. Now, right now, it looks as if Israel's continuing to prepare for a strike, but they won't do anything until they're convinced Iran has crossed a line that allows them to develop nuclear weapons. The problem is we don't know when that line will be crossed, and that's something Israel's watching constantly. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, working through our current events for the week. An Israeli scholar claims to have discovered new inscriptions in connecting King Hezekiah to monumental construction projects in Jerusalem. What exactly are the claims he's making, and how valid are they? Now, John, these claims are astounding. This University of Haifa professor says he's discovered some of the most important archaeological finds of all time, five monumental royal inscriptions from King Hezekiah, and he claims to have deciphered them all. One of the inscriptions was carved into the rock at the Canaanite pool next to the Gihon Spring. According to the professor, it reads in part, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, made the pool and the conduit in the 17th year and the second day in the fourth month of King Hezekiah. The king brought the water into the city by a tunnel. The king led the water into the pool. Now, some of those phrases are almost verbatim to what appears in the Bible, giving historical credence to the biblical account. The professor also claims to have found additional writings on the tunnel uh, below the original Siloam inscription that was discovered. He said all the inscriptions will soon be published and be accompanied by high-quality photographs. Now, unfortunately, other researchers are crying foul over the announcement. Rather than making a popular announcement in the press, they said this kind of discovery should first be presented in an academic setting where the claims could be examined and tested by other scholars to make sure they're valid. So right now, we're left with a report that hasn't been verified by other competent scholars. And until the actual findings are published in a way that allows others to verify them, 
I think we need to be cautious. You know, Proverbs eighteen seventeen says, the first to present his case seems right mm-hmm. till another comes forward and questions him. Well, we need to wait and see what that ultimate proof is and how the other scholars respond. But I am hoping these claims will eventually be validated. They are fascinating. Well, just before Christmas, Israel announced the opening to the public of the burial cave of Salome, the midwife connected to the birth of Jesus. But who exactly is Salome, and how do we know she was the midwife at Christ's birth? Yeah, well, that answer comes from the apocryphal Gospel of James. The book claims to provide additional information on Jesus' infancy, supposedly written by his stepbrother, James. However, the book wasn't written until the middle of the second century, so it wasn't written by James. It's one of several accounts from that time that tried to fill in the gaps in the gospel narrative. The accounts aren't inspired, nor are they accurate. Anyway, the Gospel of James mentions a story about a midwife named Salome who supposedly verified that Mary was still a virgin even after giving birth. Salome was a common name at that time. In fact, it comes from the Hebrew word shalom or peace. Uh, The mother of James and John was named Salome. Uh, Josephus tells us that the daughter of Herodias, the one who danced for Herod Antipas and asked for the head of John the Baptist's head on a platter, her name was also Salome. So it, it was relatively common at that time. So anyway, how does this tomb near Lachish become associated with Salome, the fictitious midwife at the birth of Jesus? Well, here's the best guess of the archaeologists. The tomb was originally a first century Jewish tomb of an apparently wealthy family. By the fourth century, at the start of the Byzantine or Christian Roman period, the tomb was uncovered and partially looted. Inside was an ossuary, a bone box, probably inscribed with the name Salome, Those who found it just assumed it was the grave of the Salome mentioned in the apocryphal gospel. As a result, the tomb became a pilgrimage site for the next several hundred years. And so now, tourists can go see a Jewish burial cave that later became a Christian holy site to a woman who didn't exist and has nothing to do with the actual birth of Jesus. (laughs) All righty, and we'll leave it right there. Hey, coming up, a full program today on The Land of the Book, a conversation with Amir Sarfati next by way of deception. We'll get to your questions, and Charlie has a devotional for us, and it's all coming together in under one hour here on The Land of the Book. Stick around, and hey, by the way, tell a friend about us. Imagine if Israel's Mossad uncovered a plot from Iran to smuggle untraceable weapons of mass destruction into Israel. It would almost certainly unleash a whirlwind of assassinations, espionage, and undercover reconnaissance. It would be nothing short of an all-out race against the clock to stop this threat against the entire Middle East region. Well, that's the premise of a new book we're going to be talking about coming up. Along with that, some eye-opening insights into Iran. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Hey, let's pause right now for a fresh idea on sharing the love of Jesus with a a Jewish friend that we love. When some of us think about uh, sharing Yeshua, Jesus, with our non-believing Jewish friends, we get sweaty palms right at the start because we're not even sure of the Jewish denomination they belong to. What stripe of belief is theirs? Should that bar us, stop us from uh, interacting with them on a on a deeper level? Greg Savitt is with Rock of Israel. What do you think, Greg? You know, the gospel is the same, you know, yesterday, today, forevermore. And usually it's not necessary to know what denomination, but I think it helps a little bit to know where you want to go with the conversation. For example, if they're Orthodox, 
You know that they believe the Bible is true, but they also believe that the rabbi's opinion in the Jewish oral law is often more important than the scripture. So you need to know that. So if they bring up something like Rashi said this or Rambam said this, you've got to look to the scriptures and say, well, what does the scripture say to you? And if they say, well, we have to look at Rambam, you can say, you look like a smart guy. Can't you just read the Bible and tell me what it says? (laughs) And also for conservative, they're like halfway in the middle. They look through the word of God, but also through culture. And liberal Jewish people, uh, they might not have a high regard for scripture. So sometimes it's difficult for them to look at the scriptures. So we got to really be prepared for any one of those three responses. Exactly. And just kind of kind of be flexible. You know, whatever they throw out, we got to adjust what we're going to say. That's Greg Savitt on The Land and the Book. Amir Sarfati is an Israeli author, Bible teacher, and Middle East news correspondent and commentator. He's known for his Bible prophecy teachings, his insight into world events, and his fiction and nonfiction books. He is founder and president of Behold Israel. Uh, We first met up with Amir Sarfati in his offices in northern Israel, and I wish we were together there right now, but it's a pleasure to reconnect, Amir. Yes, John, it's a pleasure for me as well. Yes, I wish you were here now, but uh, (laughs) it's okay. We can do it on the phone. Let's do it. Well, first, uh, this book is fiction, so I want you to introduce us to your two main characters for those unfortunate enough to have missed the first book. Well, you know, the main characters are Nir Tavor and Nicole LaRue. Nir Tavor is a Mossad agent that is also uh, having his own business for diamonds uh, in Europe. And uh, Nicole LaRue is a model that uh, somehow was caught in the middle of a terror attack in South Africa, where she's from, in an event of the Israeli embassy there in Cape Town. And Long story short, she was recruited to the Mossad, and she's a non-Jew, whereas Nir is a Jew. She came from a Christian family. She backslid from walking with the Lord, while Nir never even heard of the Messiah before. And so these two are working together as part of a team that um, is, in a very interesting way, doing stuff that really happened. I mean, most of the things in our in my two books are basically based on true events and true Mossad operations. Okay, you've gone down that road suggesting this book is at least in part inspired by real events. I want you to elaborate on that claim. What can you safely tell us, uh, bearing in mind that you have a, a career with the Israel Defense Forces? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't obviously jeopardize Israel national security by exposing stuff that is not yet out. But I, I, I am elaborating things that most... Americans and people all around the world don't really know much, and that is the recovering of the Iranian nuclear archive from a warehouse in the suburbs of Tehran, and the second one is the elimination of Fahrizadeh, the father of the Iranian nuclear program. And these are important things because when we talk about Iran and nuclear weapon, you know, Iran is deceiving the whole world that they never had any nuclear plan, that they never had any military intention to develop nuclear weapon, that everything they do is for civil purposes, for <laughs> energy. And there you go. We, we've got the entire archive recovered, or taken, stolen from several vaults that were there. And this whole book begins with that, mm. the, the new book begins with that operation. So these are the two anchors of true events 
And of course, everything else is surrounding those and the plot. By the way, every time we add fiction part to our book, it happened to be fulfilled, <laughs> whether it's months or a year later. So I hope this one will not. Yes, for sure. Well, I, that said, let me ask, how scared should all of this make us feel? I mean, the recovery of this book, that's a good thing, but their known intentions are not. Uh, how should we react? Well, first of all, it's not a secret that Iran is running, is rushing, is racing towards nuclear weapons. Right now, under the guise of some operations that they do in Natanz, they are enriching uranium to level of nuclear bomb. So everybody knows that. Now, what are they going to do with that? That's a different story. Mm -hmm. Iran wants to preserve itself. And self-preservation is, is a very big thing in Middle East. Also all around the world in regimes like that. This is the insurance policy of dark regimes to stay in power and without anyone removing them. And that is exactly the story of North Korea, and Iran wants to do the same. And Iran also knows that if the Ukraine had right now nuclear weapon, Russia would have never invaded into it. So Iran <laughs> learns the lesson that in 1994, when President Clinton promised to Ukraine that if they only give up their nuclear weapon, he will ensure that Russia will never invade into it. Mm -hmm. Well, we see how those assurances um, you know, help the Ukrainians. So Iran is looking around, learning from what's going on, and Iran is doing its own calculation. The whole world, by the way, should worry about what Iran is doing, because right now, yes. as we speak, Iran is involved in, in the war in Ukraine, not in Israel. Iran is supplying Russia with suicide drones and with long-range missiles, and the world is watching. So Iran is a very, very dangerous component that is destabilizing the whole world, and everybody should worry about it. Amir Sarfati is our guest today on The Land and the Book. Among other titles he has written, By Way of Deception, our focus today. In this book, as in the first in this fictional series, there is a powerful but tasteful evangelistic message, no doubt about it. What's your passion for this, Amir? Look, the passion is that any non-believer would be able to enter into a regular, even secular bookstore and put his hand on this thriller because it speaks of current events, because it speaks of real events that are happening and reality, mm -hmm. okay? And the gospel is somehow communicated in a very subtle, non-preachy way, in such a way that he will also think the way a non-believing Israeli Jew thinks. Mm -hmm. I mean, because the dilemmas of Nir are the dilemmas of many non-believers. Yeah. And the dilemmas of Nicole is the dilemmas of many backslidden Christians. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not jeopardizing the quality of the thriller as a thriller. No, no. You know, I've been praying for the longest time. How in the world can I reach out to non-believers mm -hmm. who would never walk into a Christian bookstore to buy teaching books? Yeah. And this idea came to me three years ago, I believe, of course, by the Lord. I came and pitched the idea to the book publishers. At first, they were a bit perplexed, and then they said, okay, if you believe in it, we're going with you. The first <laughs> one was a great success, yeah. and even this one is now a bestseller. Wow. Well, I can attest to the veracity and the appropriateness of the way you share the gospel. I liked so much what you wrote in Operation Yoktan. I got a copy of that book to an unsafe friend of mine. And uh, so that was a neat tool to be able to give him. Let me ask, have you heard any stories from those who read that first book in the series? We have. And uh, have they found yes. themselves launched into a spiritual journey? Anybody that comes to mind? 
Absolutely. We, we've heard testimonies of Christian families that gave it to non-Christians that got saved. Hmm. I'm talking about all the way. People got saved. Wow. That's not just showing interest. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about people falling on their knees, understanding their need for a Savior. And I'm not surprised, because why should I be surprised? When God gives you an idea, and He gives you the tools to do it, why are you surprised that it works? <laughs> we shouldn't be surprised. The only opposition I got is from Christians, mm. sadly to say. Really? Yes, Christians, yeah. Why do you write a fiction? Why do we need to, to, to hear about fiction? Mm. Why? I mean, hello, this, yeah. is, <laughs> this is one more way, in a very creative way, I, yes. may I add, to reach the, the unsaved. Amen. And, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's it. We're talking with Amir Sarfati in Israel, his live updates and teachings. You do get them, don't you? You're subscribed to his podcast and things. You should. They are based on God's written word, and they they sift out the truth on current events amidst global media bias against Israel. Uh, Question. You know, if you read almost any media outlet here in the West, you cannot escape the conclusion that Iran sees their agenda, their commitment to upsetting global peace, their determination to set up a global caliphate, their passion for destroying Israel, all of these things are clearly driven by their own statements by religious motivations. They've made no secret of that. So here's the question, Amir. Why does the West still not get it? Why don't we see this as a war of religions at base? Because the West is invested in Iran when it comes to financial and economical things. The West does not believe in religious wars. The West does not believe in in spiritual battle and spiritual aspect of anything. The West is only looking at power, money, and control. And for them, religion can be twisted and spiritual things can be put aside. Let's either do business or not do business with that country. Mm-hmm. This is why China is still doing business with the world, although the world knows exactly what China is up to. This is why nobody comes to help Ukraine right now in a much more substantial way, because nobody wants to cause prices of energy to even completely shatter a world economy. Look, everyone looks at its own markets and its own value and its own interests. They don't care that Iran is Shiite Muslim as much as they don't care that Saudi is a Sunni Muslim. They care about business. They care about power. They care about control. And you know what? No matter how much Iran is going to do bad things, as long as countries will have some economic or financial interest in Iran, such as France, by the way, such as China, by the way, such as Russia, by the way, as long as these countries are doing that, there will never, ever be any consideration of this war or this struggle as a, as a, as a religious and a spiritual one. Mm. You know, it's all about interests. That's all. You know, why does Iran in general tend to get secondary coverage in our media? It's there, but uh, it's usually second place when here they are potentially the world's most dangerous threat. You know, the funny thing, Iran threatens ex-members of the U.S. administration. Iran threatens to assassinate them on U.S. soil. I mean, it cannot get more to your face than this one. They're not even talking about war in the Middle East. They're saying we have the right to assassinate anyone that took part in the decision to kill General Soleimani. John Bolton and Mike Pompeo are on the top of their list. And they're not even ashamed to say that they're going to do that. On U.S. soil, Iran sent someone to stab almost to death Salman Rushdie just a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. My point is, 
Iran gets the pass from this administration because this administration is invested into it. It's invested into all of this that it chooses to turn blind eye to all of this. The previous administration was not invested into it. The previous administration could easily call the bad guys bad and the good guys good. So I think that we know exactly that the media is liberal and wherever the liberal regime decides to pay attention to, the media will do the same. I'm asking you, do you think any country on planet Earth can have another country threatening to kill a former secretary of state and just let it go? (laughs) I mean, there's no such thing. But here we see that this is spiritual. This is blindness. Absolutely. But again, once you understand there's a spiritual warfare, the liberalism and, and, and that progressive thinking is never seeing bad guys as bad guys and good guys as good guys. They always think that the good guys are the real problem because they made the bad guys being the bad guys. <laughs> and, and this is it. Yeah. You know, as a good guy, you will always be blamed for the bad guys being bad. Yeah. And so let's appease the bad. And by way of doing that, we don't mind that there will be some casualties on the good camp. It calls to mind that scripture that says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The book is called By Way of Deception. It's fiction, but remarkably, scarily on the right track, historically and prophetically. You'll want to check it out, By Way of Deception, from Amir Sarfati. Boy, our time always goes too quickly, and I want to thank you for hanging out with us. Hope to connect again, Amir. Thank you, John. Thank you. God bless. And a link to Amir's website at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's back with Bible questions next on The Land and the Book. It's segment three on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Always glad to connect with you. And you know, Charlie, I think people wonder sometimes, how do we share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it's sometimes challenging to to navigate a gospel conversation with someone from a Jewish background. Have you ever wondered how the quote-unquote professionals actually do it? Yeah, and to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. Now, to receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, let's get into today's list of questions, starting with Ghani's, who takes us to Revelation chapter 3, wondering if verse 3 refers to the Lord referring to his second coming or to the rapture of the church. And if so, does any of this mean that those churchgoers who compromise their Christian beliefs with the world are somehow not saved? Yeah, and I'm going to throw a curveball here. I, I don't see Jesus using the phrase in that particular passage, I will come like a thief, to refer either to the rapture or to the second coming. Now, I say that for two reasons. First, he's already told this church that it is dead. He said that in verse 1. Uh, apart from a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, uh, he says this church is characterized as one that's already spiritually dead. So most of those in the church were evidently not true believers. 
And the promise Jesus gives in verses 5 to 6 is to the small believing remnant that remained. Second, I believe the reference is to Jesus coming to destroy this church's physical presence in Sardis. And I say that because of something similar Jesus said to the church at Ephesus back in Revelation 2.5. He said if that church failed to repent, he said he would come and remove your lampstand from its place. Well, the lampstand was a reference to the professing church in each city. So in the case of Ephesus and I believe here in Sardis, I think Jesus is saying he's going to come in judgment and physically remove this church's visible presence as a light to him in that city. And indeed, I think that is what happened historically to the church at Sardis. Here's a question from Bob. He says, I'm teaching through Zechariah and we're up to chapter 14. I've always been confused about where the Lord will return. We read of his victory at the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16 and 19. But in Zechariah 14, verse 4, Zechariah says his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives at the second coming. So which comes first, his arrival for the Battle of Armageddon or his feet touching down on the Mount of Olives? Yeah, I love this question. And I believe Zechariah is showing us the exact spot where Jesus will return to earth. Now, what many call the Battle of Armageddon is actually not a battle, at least not as John describes it in Revelation 16. The hill of Megiddo Har Megiddo or Armageddon and the Jezreel Valley are the gathering point or the staging area for the armies of the Antichrist and Satan. I had a professor who called it the start of the campaign of Armageddon, and that might be a good description. The armies gather there, but then they begin a final campaign which ends in their attack against Jerusalem, and it's at that point where Jesus returns to earth. Now, I see a parallel in Daniel chapter 11, verses 41 to 45. The Antichrist invades the beautiful land, that's the gathering at Armageddon, begins his final campaign of conquest, but the campaign ends, he says, when he arrives between the seas, that is between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, at the beautiful holy mountain, which is Jerusalem, and that's when the Lord returns to defeat the enemies and establish his kingdom. Love having your company today here at The Land and the Book. Our host is a guy who loves the Bible, loves answering your questions. I'm John Geiger, and I'm curious about all of it, like this one from Jan. She says, my small group is currently studying the book of Hebrews, and so far, I haven't found a reasonable explanation to the seemingly inaccurate description of the placement of the incense altar within the Holy of Holies in Hebrews 9, verses 3 and 4. Can you help me unravel this? Yeah, well, there are several possible explanations, but here's the one I favor. It's having the word translated golden altar in Hebrews 9, understanding that to mean a golden censer, like the censer Aaron and the subsequent high priests, filled with incense and coals from the altar to take inside the veil to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, 12 to 13, Aaron was told to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord. That would be the altar of incense and then take them behind the curtain. Now, while the Greek word used in Hebrews 9 normally refers to the altar of incense, that same word was used to refer to a censer, that is the the thing they held in their hand, in the Septuagint translation of Ezekiel 8 and 2 Chronicles 26. And my point, though, is the word can be understood to refer to a censer rather than just to the altar of incense. And I believe it's clear that the altar of incense was located outside the veil. But on the Day of Atonement, coals from that altar, along with incense that would normally be placed on the altar, were brought into the Holy of Holies before God's presence above the cherubim on the mercy seat. So in this sense, the incense censer, functioning the same way the altar was, representing the prayers of God's people before the Lord, was indeed brought inside the Holy of Holies. Mary has a question about the creation. In Genesis, it states, On the first day, God did not create light, but made it to appear. 
Did light exist prior to the six-day creation? Did light exist prior to Satan's fall? What verse indicates that? He also says, on the second day, God did not create the waters, but divided the waters. Does Genesis 1 verse 2 indicate that the waters were already existing before Satan's fall? Finally, the account says God did not create the earth, but gathered the waters that the dry land may be made to appear. Please explain if this is true and explain if light and land existed before Satan's fall. Well, first, I got to say this. Light did exist prior to the first day of creation. I say that because the Bible says light is one of the characteristics of God himself. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And since God is eternal, that characteristic of God being light must also be eternal. So while his creation included both darkness and light, the characteristic of light itself was always part of God's eternal nature. Now, second, we're not told exactly when Satan is created. I personally believe God created the angels prior to his creation of the visible universe we now see. And I say that because in Job 38, verses 4 to 7, God asks Job a series of questions showing that Job didn't understand how God created the universe. In fact, he says, where was Job when he laid the earth's foundation, pointing to the time of creation? And then when he says, when the morning stars sang together and all the angels, literally all the sons of God, shouted for joy. In other words, the angels were present and rejoicing as God created the visible universe described in Genesis 1. So I think the creation of the angels and Satan's subsequent rebellion and fall took place prior to the creation of the earth in Genesis. That's also why Satan can then appear in the Garden of Eden uh, shortly after creation. Now, finally, I believe Genesis 1-1 does make it clear God created the heavens and the earth. But the earth itself was without form in the sense of not having distinguishable land features since it was all covered with water. It was only after God gathered the water into the seas that the dry land actually appeared. The land was there, just covered by water. Fascinating. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate your clarifying that. A question from Steve. He says, living in spiritually dark Vermont, I hear people talk about karma all the time. Good comes to those who do good, and bad comes to those who do bad. Reading the scriptures this morning, I came upon Ephesians 6, verse 8, and Colossians 3, verse 25, which basically say the same thing, good from good and bad from bad. So does the teaching of karma have some validity biblically, or is this comparing apples with oranges? Yeah, I like the apples and oranges comparison. I don't believe the concept of karma, at least as it was formulated in Buddhism, has biblical validity. Now, Buddhism teaches that our present state is the result of past actions in previous lives. Now, the way karma is often used today has the idea of present-day cause and effect, and that is a principle that's generally true. The book of Proverbs teaches that wise actions generally lead to blessing, while foolish actions lead to difficulty and problems and heartache. You know, those who steal generally get caught and go to jail. Those who reach out to bless others are generally rewarded with kindness in return. But the Bible doesn't teach reincarnation, so that part of karma, at least as taught by Buddhism, just isn't found there. Now, I do see two other biblical truths that might help. Uh, the first is in a passage like Ephesians 6, 8 and Colossians 3, 25, where the reward from God might come in this life. I think, ultimately, Paul is looking toward eternity. In fact, in Colossians 3.24, the verse just before the one you listed, Paul refers to receiving an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, suggesting that reward will come in our eternal inheritance. A second, the Bible makes it clear in this present life that sin and other factors often keep people from receiving immediate reward or punishment for their behavior. You know, Job had no idea why he was suffering, and his friends got it wrong when they thought it was God punishing him for some hidden sin. 
In Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the reward and punishment came following death, not during their life. And as Solomon so wisely noted in Ecclesiastes, in this life, there are times when righteous men get what the wicked deserve and wicked men get what the righteous deserve. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. Simply put, life isn't always fair, at least in terms of immediate reward or punishment. And that's a look at Bible questions that have come our way, and yours is welcome too. Send an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thanks for sticking around for Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's next. Someone wiser than me said, talk with your mind before you talk with your tongue. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book, where our host, Charlie Dyer, has got a devotional all ready for us. It's in a series called Proverbs to Live By in the New Year. Charlie, where are we going today? Well, John, we're heading to Babylon. I'm going to babble on about Babylon today. (laughs) I have a feeling it's about controlling the tongue. We're going to look forward to that devotional. First, though, this uh, personal testimony from someone who's traveled to the Holy Land, and they wanted to share their thoughts with us. I have been blessed to be on my second tour with Charlie Dyer. And I think um, the experience at En Gedi was very meaningful to me. How David found Saul indisposed and had the opportunity to take his life. And yet he recognized and acknowledged that Saul was God's anointed one for a purpose. And he acted righteously and did not slay him when he had the opportunity. And it was a great lesson because Charlie shared how we respond to treatment, ill treatment from others, is a key on our walk with Christ. And that was very meaningful to me. Always great to hear from listeners who've been to the Holy Land. Well, it's been said that the tongue has no bones, but is strong enough to break a heart. So be careful with your words. Well, that's a great thought to launch into today's devotional Proverbs to Live By. And with that, Charlie, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, that's a great way to launch into it, John, because this is week two in our four-week series that I have called Proverbs to Live By in the New Year. And you might want to pack a flak jacket for today's journey because we're heading to the Iraqi city of Babylon, 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. The conflict between the U.S. and Saddam Hussein ended a long time ago, but the struggles within that country continue. We'll keep a low profile, so we should be okay. Saddam Hussein tried to revive Babylon as a propaganda piece during his eight-year war with Iran. His goal was to use the city to unite the Iraqi people, both Sunni and Shiite, against Iran by appealing to Iraq's historic past. He rebuilt portions of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, several temples, and a theater that dates back to the time of Alexander the Great. He also built a palace for himself on an artificial hill looking down on Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But our goal today is a more modest structure right next to the branch of the Euphrates River that still flows through the city. I first visited here 35 years ago, shortly after it was built. Uh, The building today is somewhat run down, but follow me inside as I share a story from my first visit here. I was in Babylon attending the first Babylon festival sponsored by Saddam Hussein. When I heard about the festival, I wrote to the Iraqi embassy asking to be invited. I know the brashness of youth is astounding, but through a remarkable set of God-ordained circumstances, I actually was given an invitation. I remember the ride from Baghdad down to Babylon with a busload of distinguished ladies and gentlemen. 
We went into the building, took our seats at tables in this large room as an older gentleman walked to the platform. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Munir Bashir, and I welcome all of you world-famous ethnomusicologists to this symposium on musicology in Babylon. Well, two thoughts sprang immediately to mind. Uh, the first was, the official at the embassy never told me she got me into the gathering by identifying me as a world-famous ethnomusicologist. Now, I used to play a banjo, and not very well, mind you. Uh, I knew nothing about musicology, and a momentary feeling of panic threatened to overwhelm me. You know, what if I'm asked to do something that reveals I'm a fraud? And then that thought was immediately replaced by another. It was so clear and distinct that to this day, I can almost swear someone whispered into my ear, even a fool is thought to be wise if he keeps silent. Now, I knew that was from the book of Proverbs, but I had to wait till I returned home to look it up. In the meantime, I sat quietly taking notes on topics I didn't understand while using the rest of my time to explore the ancient city of Babylon. Now, that experience was my practical introduction to Proverbs 17:28, a verse that I had never consciously tried to memorize, but that became a wise word from God at just the right moment in my life. After arriving home, I studied the verse and discovered how practical it really was. The entire verse says, Even a fool is thought to be wise if he keeps silent, and discerning if he holds his tongue. Solomon says much about the prattling of fools. Uh, twice in chapter 10, he says, a chattering fool comes to ruin. And then later in chapter 18, he tells us that a fool delights in airing his own opinions. The fool seems to be the one who opens his mouth and quickly inserts his foot. He pontificates on subjects he really doesn't understand, and he would rather share his ignorance than quietly listen to what others have to say. Now, a fool in the Bible doesn't refer to someone who's intellectually challenged. Rather, the fool is insolent and shameless in his thoughts and actions. The fool believes and acts as if there's no God. He's the center of his own universe, or as someone once described him, a fool is a legend in his own mind. But back to Proverbs 17:28, Solomon begins with a comparison. Even a fool, the idea is that even someone who is so morally and spiritually bankrupt that others would quickly classify him as a fool, is able to trick others if he takes one strategic action. And what's that key action? He chooses to keep silent and hold his tongue. Solomon then expands on the idea. Not only will the person not be revealed as the fool he really is, the others in the group might actually assume he's wise and discerning. Now, that's what I did at that conference in Babylon. I sat quietly with my mouth closed, asking no questions, but simply taking notes. And a month after the first Babylon festival, I was contacted by the Iraqi embassy to see if I'd like to attend the following year's festival, and they offered to pay my way. Now, I did go, but that's a story for another time. Uh, to drive home the point of the proverb, Solomon brackets it with two related truths. In 1727, he says that a man of knowledge uses words with restraint, or as the New American Standard Bible translates it, he who restrains his words has knowledge. Controlling the tongue rather than using words as a weapon, shows remarkable restraint and wisdom. At the opposite end of the spectrum is chapter 18, verse 2. A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. How do you tell the difference between someone who's wise and someone who's foolish? It will often show up in what comes or doesn't come out of their mouth. Now, as we get ready to leave this now dilapidated guest house and hop on the bus to return to Baghdad, 
What practical lessons can you take with you from Proverbs 17? One lesson is the importance of controlling our tongue and our emotions. Jesus' half-brother James provided practical advice on this subject in James 1, verses 19 to 20. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Or as my mother said to me, uh, there's a reason God gave you two eyes, two ears, and only one mouth. Uh, But the second lesson is the importance of reading God's word, including the book of Proverbs. Even if you're not consciously trying to memorize it, God will take the truth you've inputted into your mind and bring it back to help guide you during those crisis points in life. Just ask that pseudo-ethnomusicologist who sat among the experts in Saddam Hussein's guest house. Remember, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is thought to be wise. You know, Charlie, as I listen to this devotional on Proverbs 17, 28, I'm really enjoying this series, Proverbs to Live By, but it seems to be the idea of controlling the tongue begins with having our lives controlled by Jesus Christ, a much bigger issue. For somebody listening right now to this program saying, you know, I I can't think of the time when I've ever actually asked Jesus to come into my life, to take control of of my life. What would they do right now? What what do they pray? What's the next step? Uh, The greatest step that they can make is just to recognize that, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've violated your law. I know I'm not living the way you would want me to be. And I believe your son, Jesus, came to earth and died to pay the penalty for my sin. And so, Lord, right now, I'm confessing with my mouth that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I believe in my heart you raised him from the dead and that he is the one who will take away my sin. And in doing that, by just making that confession, making that prayer, the individual will become a child of God. It's that simple. Uh, It's nothing you have to do. It's just a matter of putting your trust in Jesus Christ. But that's the greatest decision of all that someone could make this new year. Two quick follow-ups, Charlie, and thank you for that great answer. One, if you'd like to extend this conversation, have your questions answered. Why not talk to a friend now at 888-NEED-HIM? That's 888-NEED-HIM. A volunteer would be glad to listen to you and pray with you. 888-NEED-HIM. The other thing is, if you've made this decision and prayed this prayer, share it with us, if you would, in an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Well, it's been a great ride today. It always is. And we want to say thank you to the team, Dan Anderson at the controls, Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. And thank you for thanking the management at this station for making time for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.